We're going to be in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, which should be a relatively familiar passage. When I read it in a moment, it's going to sound very familiar to you. But we've been walking through, since Easter, a series on this concept. If the resurrection's true, then these things should be true of my life. And we've talked about how we can actually trust to believe that it's real, that we can anticipate it in the future, that we can experience it today. And so we've been kind of walking through 2,000 years ago, a group of people witnessed Jesus' death and his resurrection, and it changed everything for them. Nothing was ever the same for them. And 2,000 years removed, we should have the same experience because God's Spirit lives in, in us and works in us that we can have that same understanding of the resurrection today that transforms everything in us. So this morning is the last kind of section or the last Sunday of this series, and we're going to talk about this concept. If the resurrection is real, Jesus really died and really rose from the dead, then I have to share it. I can't contain it. I can't kind of keep it within me. If it really is true, if Jesus really did die and really is alive, then I can't keep this to myself. I have to be willing to share it. Now, there's a challenge, I think, for us, and I've noticed this is true in my life, I'll be honest, and I'm sure it's true in most of our lives, not everyone, but most of us, is that we, we talk about this thing called the gospel. That's what the Bible refers to, the good news about who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what that means for our lives. So we talk about sharing the good news. But I think I've watched in culture, and I know in my life, I actually am more eager to share bad news than I am good news. And if some of you probably don't want to admit this, but it's true. If you look at our culture today, when something bad happens, you hear about it sooner than when something good happens. When you turn on the TV, when something amazing has happened, they don't like break through breaking news and they have this great report. It's usually when tragedy strikes, right? We want to get bad news out quickly. So if, if you don't think that's true, turn your TV on to any one of the major networks between 7 and 8. The majority of shows that come on between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. at night are like extra and um, shows like Access Hollywood. And what are those shows built on? They're dishing on all the celebrities' tragedies in life. How their marriage is ending, how they're drug addicted, how this happened and that happened. How many know that's true? And it sells. People love to hear all the bad stuff that happens. Why? Because bad news travels fast. But what if, as a follower of Jesus... The best news that you could have, the best story that's ever been told, the best reality of what, what could happen in our lives is the good news of the gospel that we are so consumed with that we can't hold it inside, that we want to get it out there. We want people to know about that. That's what we should be experiencing. And that's part of what I want to talk about this morning is that if this is true, if Jesus is alive, then I can't in my life and in my words and my thoughts, I can't get away from it. I have to let it out and let people know about it and experience it. And so this morning we're going to talk about this reality, being able to share the truth of the resurrection with other people. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. This is again is one of those experiences that Jesus' followers had after he had died and risen from the dead. He appeared to them a number of times, and this is one of those appearances, one of the last times they're going to see, see him. And listen to the words that he speaks to them, very, very important and powerful words that we're going to walk through today. Verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Anybody heard that passage before? Most of us, it's familiar. So, so just a couple of qualifiers before we jump into some questions I'm going to ask that kind of come out of what we call the Great Commission. 
And the first one is this. If you are a follower of Jesus and you've made a commitment in your life to follow him, then I am talking to you today. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you have yet to come to understand God's love and what that means like through Jesus, then I'm actually talking about you. Just so you understand the difference between two things, okay? I'm talking to you if you're a Christian. I'm talking about you if you've yet to become a Christian. And that's important this morning. So for those of you who have made a commitment to follow Jesus, there's something that happens to us over the course of our journey with Jesus that actually is not a good thing. If you remember back to that moment, for some it may be recent, for others it may be decades ago, when you actually came to that moment in your life where you realized, I need God. Something has happened in your life, you got to a moment of desperation, you realize there's something that you can't fix about who you are, and it drives you to, in this desperate moment, to surrender your life to Jesus. And in that moment, there's this, there's this energy and this passion you have because you're so hungry and so desperate that anything Jesus asks you to do, you don't even question it, you just do it. Anybody remember that? It's that passion that, 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 passion that leads to basically unconditional obedience because you're so hungry and you're so desperate. Well, something happens over time when we follow Jesus. We start to lose that hunger and that passion and that desperation. This is what happens to us. The things that we used to see as commands that were non-negotiable, that God has called us to in our life, over time what happens is they stop being commands and they start becoming options. And it happens. It's happened to me where you will hear something that years before would have been very convicting and it would have said, yeah, you know what, Jesus is saying that, I need to do this. And you hear it again and you hear it again and then finally like the hundredth time you're like, yeah, but I'm under grace and mercy. God hasn't called me to do that. That's somebody else's responsibility. And we make it look like somehow what Jesus said is something that if we get around to it, if we feel like it, if maybe it's a good day, we'll do it, not realizing that Jesus has given commands that he says, this is not an option. It's not a requirement for your salvation, but it is a requirement to engage that you've really experienced the death and resurrection of Jesus. You've understood the forgiveness that God brings to your life, the reconciliation he's brought to you through Jesus back to him that so impacts you that you hear this and you go, oh, okay, I'm supposed to do that. That's not somebody else's responsibility. When we read this thing called, we call it the Great Commission, so many of us will default and we go, yeah, that's for the missionary that goes to Africa and reaches people. I'll pray for them, I'll applaud them, and I'll even give, but I ain't going. Because that's not my responsibility, because I'm not a missionary. Just so we get this clear, if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what you are? You are a missionary. You don't get to choose the title that, and say, ah, it's not me. You may not be a vocational missionary that is paid to go somewhere, but you are, by your lifestyle, a missionary. So with that mindset this morning, I want us to look in this passage because Jesus is giving one of the strongest commands he gives in all of Scripture. And it's important that we understand the context. So some questions out of this. The first question is this. Look at verses 17 and 18. Why do I need to share Jesus? Why do we need to tell the good news? Why do people need to know about Jesus' death and his resurrection and what that means for them? Why? There's two reasons in this passage that are totally clear. The first one is this. Verse 17 is the truth of the resurrection. The truth that it actually happened. So it says in verse 17, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So the word doubt, we always think, well, doubted means, well, they're probably going to check out. They really weren't going to follow Jesus. Doubt actually means hesitated, which means they witnessed Jesus' death and his resurrection. Now they're at this place where Jesus called them. He's on this mountainside with them, and he's, he's saying something to them. And there isn't that they're, like, doubting he's real or doubting the resurrection. They're slow to fully embrace what has just unfolded before them. That happens to us. You know, when something happens and you're like, I don't know if this is real. This is, like, too amazing. This is, we use the word, this is surreal, 
And that is because you're slow into stepping into it. But as you read through this book, Matthew, and if you jump into the book of Acts, you realize that that, that doubt and that hesitation disappeared. Because they experienced not only the death and resurrection of Jesus, they experienced, which we'll talk about later on, the power of the Holy Spirit inside of them. Because why they actually witnessed the resurrection and were convinced that it actually happened. If you've missed any part of this series, go back to the first Sunday that we talked about the reality if the resurrection's real and it, it's true, it really happened, then I actually can believe it. And we took time that Sunday to look before the Bible was written, before the New Testament came into being, there was evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. Because we always say, why do I believe it? Because the Bible says so. Well, in our culture, that's not good enough. But there's evidence outside the Bible, before the Bible, that says Jesus rose from the dead. You and I can, with confidence, not just blindly say, oh yeah, well, I just believe because I'm a Christian. No, I believe because history tells us so, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so the first reality of why do I need to share this? Because it actually happened. It's true. It's real. It's not legend. It's not folklore. It's not fairy tale. It's reality. It is historic fact that there is one person and one person only in this all of human history who has actually come back from the dead and to this day does not have a grave that you can go visit. It's one person. His name is Jesus. It's the truth of the resurrection. And then the second one, this one leans a little bit more heavily, and that is it's the authority of the resurrection. We struggle with authority, but Jesus has that. Listen to what he says in verse 18. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Before he makes this statement, this command of what he's going to tell us to do. I want you to understand this. We read that, and if you're like me, I've been in church a long time, and I have either read or heard that passage, I'm not joking, probably a thousand times. Well, what if you were hearing it for the first time? And the context you're hearing it made ev all the world difference of what Jesus was saying. Remember what they had just been through. These are the 11. They lost Judas. Remember, he, he betrayed Jesus. So this is the 11 standing before Jesus. And these are the 11 that walked day in and day out with Jesus. They, they saw him do miracles. They watched him preach with authority. They saw him cast out demons. They were in the public moments. They were in the private moments. They witnessed everything. They were close to him. They watched him die and thought that their whole world had come to an end. And then they all witnessed firsthand, face-to-face, -face, the resurrection. So they have just witnessed the most incredible thing they've ever seen in their life, and they've watched Jesus do all of this, and then he comes to them and he says, all authority over life, death, sin, forgiveness, everything of the human experience, everything of all of eternity, everything of all of creation, all authority, what? Is mine. He's earned it. And they were probably at that moment going, yeah, there is no other higher authority than him. He's earned this. And that's why you read through the scriptures, you realize that Jesus had, there's a, there a huge comparison between the establishment of the day, which is the religious leaders, who when people heard Jesus speak, they would say, he has authority. He speaks with a weight that those religious leaders, although they have lots of information and they have lots of education, they don't have the same weight that Jesus has. So when Jesus speaks, I actually listen and I want to obey. Why? Because he demonstrated he earned that authority. So I'm going to play a short clip from probably the most famous clip from the movie Braveheart. So if you haven't seen Braveheart, spoiler alert, you should have already seen it 20 years ago, whenever it came out, okay? So the concept of Braveheart, it is, it is based on the true life story of William Wallace who helped liberate uh, Scotland from kind of the, the overbearing arm of the, of the British Empire. And in his day, and, and, he, and he led commoners 
to do what the nobles, those in position and had money, could not do with their own people. And I want you to see this clip because what you're going to see is not only obviously an inspiring speech, which is, you know, everybody kind of knows this, this scene, but you're going to see a, a comparison between a group of people who have no authority and one man who has earned authority and speaks with that authority and how people respond to that. So let's go ahead and take a look at this together. So just I want you to capture what's going on. He, go, he gallops up to the nobles who are standing there, and they believe that's their army, but their army won't follow them. And then he gives a speech. So you know, historical context. He had, he had, he had a couple battles before this scene. He, he had earned the respect of the commoners because he was fighting as a commoner, side by side for Scotland. So when he makes this statement, they know that he knows what he's talking about, and he has an authority that actually ignites an entire nation. Now, I want you just for a moment to picture something far more significant and moving than even that historically or what Hollywood can capture. There's a mountainside that Jesus stood on with 11 men that he had invested his life into, and they had witnessed side by side. He had lived with them for three years. He had died for them, and he redeemed their souls. He had risen from the dead. He was alive standing in front of them, and then he says this. All authority has been given to me. Let that sink in for a moment. And Jesus doesn't say that just to the 11. He says that for every person who's chosen to follow him throughout human history. I have all authority. I have earned it through my death and my resurrection, through the power of God through me. I have earned authority over everything. So what I'm about to say is the most important thing you're going to hear in your life. So you need to listen. That's what Jesus was saying. So do you think maybe he had their attention? I'm convinced they all, I think even in that moment, for some of them who hesitated, I think the hesitation was now disappearing. It's like, okay, Jesus is about to say something I have to hear because he has all authority, which leads to the second question. Look at verse 19. How am I supposed to share Jesus? So we're going to get to this whole concept, but for Jesus is about to say, how am I supposed to share Jesus? He's getting, into, we're walking the passage. He says, go therefore and make disciples. And you think, wouldn't he just say, go tell my story, or go tell the good news, or just tell people I died and rose from the dead. Yeah, that's all a part of the gospel, but Jesus says, go and make disciples. That was intentional. Jesus is calling his followers, his disciples, to make disciples as they have been made disciples. So this disciple, that word, has kind of two elements to it. It has the element of a student and a teacher relationship where a student understands, a good student in humility understands they don't know everything. And they're willing to submit themselves to a teacher who knows more than they do so that they can learn. That's kind of the connotation. So what Jesus is saying is that, that you are going to, as I have been your teacher, you will be a teacher to others. And in humility, as you have learned from me, others will learn in humility from you. So that's that element. And then the other side of it is not only the student, but as this element of a disciple is a follower. It isn't just someone who gains a bunch of information about a person or an experience, but actually takes action in their life to follow. And that's why John actually says it in his first epistle in 1 John about basically if you say that you're in Jesus, if you're in God, if you're in his family, then you will walk or you will live as Jesus lived. That's what we're supposed to do. So there's this following element. So Jesus says to make disciples. Now, this is important because... One of the struggles that we have about making disciples is that we default to, well, I know how we make disciples. We fill the minds of people full of information about God, and then, ta-da, we have a disciple. No, we have someone full of knowledge, but we don't necessarily have a disciple. 
Because you and I can experience knowledge and never have transformation in our lives. We can learn lots of things and never let it translate, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But one of the things that Jesus did in demonstrating how to make disciples is that he showed his disciples how to do that. Now, we don't know all, it's not all recorded, but we don't know all the, the, the private sidebar conversations or the moments where Scripture doesn't record Jesus' encounters with the disciples. But here's the reality. How did Jesus disciple his followers? He let them into his life. He didn't show up on a Sunday morning and preach a good message and say, okay, now go live your life. He invited them. That's why when he meets Peter on a seashore and gives Peter the biggest catch he's ever had, he says what? Come follow me. And then Peter walks away from his his the largest catch of his life. Why? Because Jesus says, you're going to come be with me. You're going to be with me day in and day out. You're going to learn from me. You're going to watch me. You're going to see me. I'm going to show you what it means to be me. I'm going to show you what it is to experience God's grace in your life. I'm going to show you what it is to do miracles. I'm going to demonstrate what your life's supposed to look like in my life. But how did Jesus do that? He did the scariest thing that any human being can do. He let people into his life. We don't like that. Can we be honest for a moment? We don't want people in our business. We don't want people seeing us. You think, oh, it was easy for Jesus. He was God. He was perfect. There was no bad moments for Jesus, so he could let them into any moment. You know what? One of the things in our culture that people are dying for, they're not dying for perfect Christians. They're dying for real ones. They're dying for people who say, you know what? I am a follower of Jesus, covered by God's grace, but I am not perfect, and I will fail. But in my moments of failure, I will walk in God's grace. And you will see God redeem the brokenness in my life. And I will let somebody in, and then they will see that's what it means to be a Christian. One of the most, the best compliments you can get from somebody who doesn't know Jesus is to walk up to you and say, you know what, you're not like the other Christians that I've met. Because why are they saying? The other Christians I've met are what? Hypocritical and judgmental and distant and care, they don't care about anything but themselves. But they meet you and you're like, wow, you're real. There's something about you that, that you let people in. But we don't want to do that, do we? Why? Because it's scary. But think about this. Who that in your life that doesn't know Jesus have you let into your life to see how you live? Our culture fights hard against this. I've joked about it, but we live in a city where we, we love the automatic garage door opener because it is our salvation to keep us away from our neighbors. I can wave at my neighbors, but I don't ever have to talk to them. Why? Because I hit the button, and they all go away. Because I don't want them into my life. I don't want them seeing what's going on inside of me. Isn't it funny that Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus let people into his life. He let these men into his life, and those are the people that transformed their culture in the first century. Who are you letting into your life? You can't make disciples, which, by the way, we'll talk more about, unless what? You let people in. Discipleship doesn't happen in a classroom. It happens in life. We get that because that's what Jesus demonstrated. He didn't just say make disciples. He showed us how to make disciples. Then we will live our lives differently. Third question, who am I supposed to share Jesus with? So then Jesus says, he says what? He says, make disciples, and he says, of all nations. That's comprehensive, in other words, translated, everybody. 
There's nobody that is excluded from what Jesus wants to do in their life. There's nobody that is excluded from the potential of them becoming a follower of Jesus who understands what he has done for them, his forgiveness that has connected them back to God, and his conquering death that gives them life forever. There's nobody that speaks a different language than you, eats a different kind of food, has a different skin, skin color, lives in a different cult, na- national, or just different country, or has a different culture. There's nobody that somehow, uh, you know what, everybody but them. Jesus said this, why? Because he knows something about human beings. What does he know? He knows that we like what's familiar. Let's just be honest. We like people who look like us, talk like us, eat like us, think like us, speak the same language, live in the same neighborhood. We like those kind of people. But somebody who's different, whose culture is different, who has a different worldview, who has a different religion, or has anything different, we don't like different. We like same. That's why Jesus said what? All nations. Why? Because he knows our default. He's saying no. In fact, it's so important he says all nations because that is a part of his mission that he's called us to reach all people. So why is this significant? Well, because most of us in our lifetime probably, but some will, probably won't move to another country and become a vocational missionary. But it doesn't mean that we're not a missionary. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to intentionally go after people who are different than us to help them understand who Jesus is. So how, how do we do that? Well, we pray. That's a, for starters. Do we, do we pray for the world? Do we pray for people that are different than us? That's a struggle. And here's the, here's the challenge is most are like, well, I, I love all nationalities. I love all people groups until you find the one that offends you the most. And I know I've, I've had this conversation with people. I'll tell you, you know, to the Christian culture right now, the most offensive person is someone from the Middle East who is Muslim. Because most persecution today in the world is Muslim on Christian persecution. So I'm fine with everybody. I'm good with everybody. And then like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. Now you're talking about Muslims? Those extremists are killing people around the world. You're expecting me to pray for them. You're expecting me to care for them. You're expecting me to love you, them. No, I'm not. Jesus is. He said it. He said what? Love those who persecute you. Pray for, the, pray for your enemies. Why? Because God knew that we would push people away who are different or a struggle or who have offended us. Think about that. You know, another way that we can help support what's going on on in all nations is we can give financially, which as a church we've made a strong commitment to do, and we continue to do. And that may be individuals who are giving through the church, or it may be what we've, and I've talked about this, we work really hard to set a budget, to stay within our budget over the year so that we can give resource away for the purpose of reaching people who are different than us. And we give thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars away. And this comes through, some of it, through the giving that you give, that the church council will make a decision saying we need to respond to what God's doing somewhere around the world because we know there's people in that culture that don't know Jesus. And somebody's there helping them. We need to support what's going on. Kim will tell you some of the best church council meetings, which is our primary governing board. A lot of my friends, they go to church council meetings like, oh man, what a drag. I come home energized. Because we've got leaders in this church that believe that God uses our church for the purpose of generosity to extend his kingdom around the world. And it is so fun to sit at a table with a group of people who are wanting to be generous with the resource God has given us. A week and a half ago at our council meeting, meeting we invested $15,000 in 15 minutes. Fastest $15,000 you're ever going to go through like that. In two primary areas. One was there is a four-square work in Vanuatu, which is an island chain off the coast of Australia. And you might know it because if you watch Survivor, one of the seasons was there. That's the only reason people know Vanuatu. 
but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people spread out of multiple islands that have never had access to Jesus yet. But there's a small work through Foursquare that's happening there right now, and there's about nine churches, and, and two years ago there's a cyclone that went through Vanuatu, and the majority of the churches were destroyed. And then about a year after that, a team went and tried to rebuild some of them, but basically, un- honestly, they got a roof with some posts, but when you're in Vanuatu, it rains, and there's wind, and so they, some of the churches, when it's bad weather, they can't even meet. And so the missionary there just said, hey, we're, we're trying to rebuild churches. And so basically, the church council said, you know what, let's adopt one of the churches, and for $5,000, we're going to rebuild that church. Now, we may not send a team over there, but that money is going to help locals get the resources, and they're going to rebuild the church so when it rains, they can still gather. They can still worship. And then we were faced with another need that, that most of us are unaware of. This is what's shocking. Do you know that one of the, the, the worst famines in recent history is occurring right now in Eastern Africa, but most of us don't hear about it? We're too consumed with our politics and who's in the White House and election. There are 22 million people right now that are at risk of starvation. In Sudan, in Somalia, in northern Uganda, in parts of Kenya. That's happening right now. And so we responded because there's, a, there's an element of our movement called Foursquare Disaster Relief that has discovered that there's some small kind of churches that this is what's crazy people from south sudan because of starvation and persecution because if you don't remember if you know history just in the last decade south sudan pulled away from northern sudan which is primarily muslim southern sudan is primarily christian so they're being persecuted so they're running across the border into uganda because they're starving and they're going to die because of their faith and so then there's these camps that pop up these refugee camps you know what's happening in those camps churches are being started in refugee camps and so we came up with the church council. We discovered what Foursquare is doing there, and we realized there are millions of people starving. So the church council said, all right, we're giving $10,000 to help feed people in refugee camps in northern Uganda from Sudan. That's awesome. That's awesome. Why? Because there's people that not only need a meal, beyond that, they need Jesus. They need Jesus so we can give. But you know what? There's a third element, which we're going to talk about in a moment, and that is you're like, yeah, I'll pray, I'll give. But you know what? God might say, no, you're going. And you know what he's going to say? You're all going. Let me explain what that means. Look at verse 19, because the fourth question is this. How am I supposed to make disciples? So Jesus actually highlights three ways. And the first one is an assumption. He says, by going. He says, go therefore. Literal translation is, by the way, as you're going, as you're living, as you're on, on mission, as you're moving, make disciples. It doesn't, it's funny, when the translation says go and, no, it's not, there is really no and there. It's as you are going already, you should be making disciples. Why is that important? Jesus is making an assumption for every follower of him. You're going to be going. You're going to be moving. You're going to be initiating. You're going to be going after people. You're going to be doing that. You're going to be living your life. You're never going to be in neutral. That's not an option. We're always going to be going. Why is that important? Because we like to stay. We like to sit. We like to wait. We like to just stay in neutral for most of our lives. We don't like to go. But Jesus said, as you are going, which makes the assumption that that we are people that are constantly on the move, that are going in our neighborhoods, that are going in our jobs, that are going in our schools, that are going in our families, that we we are always going. If you're not going, you can't make disciples. Because guess what? People don't come to you. You have to go to them. That's why this whole concept of mission is that we are sent. Because you have to go. 
Now, why is that important? Because for some of us, that scares us to death. We don't want to go. We, we want to avoid. But God says, as you're going. Now, for some of you, you may end up somewhere in the world someday being a vocational missionary that is supported to go reach a people that haven't heard Jesus yet, heard about Jesus yet. You might do that. But, you know, all of us are called to go right where we're at. And for some of us, you know what that means? Going for you, and this is, I've said this before, going for you is actually talking to your neighbor. God's saying, you may not go to Africa, but I, I'm, I am asking you to walk across the street. And for some of us, we're like, oh, no, you don't know my neighbor. They're sinners. They cuss. They play loud music. They do drugs. <laughs> God loves them so much, he puts you right across the street from them. For some of you, 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 you don't realize that, that I've said this before. I'm convinced in our church, I don't have anybody specifically in mind, but I know there are people in our church that someday God is going to call to go change another part of the world, and you are not there yet because you are scared to death to walk across the street. But your first step is walking across the street, and then God's going to lead you on a journey that's going to take you across the world. But you're still too afraid to talk to your neighbor. It starts there. That's why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. I've shared this story before. Let me tell you, I'm going to brag on my friend Penny, who's from, from Newburgh, Oregon. Penny was as timid and as scared as you would find a human being. In fact, she had a hard time talking to her neighbor, but somehow somebody twisted her arm really hard and got her to go on one of our Dream Center teams. We came down from Oregon, and we would send a team twice a year down to the Dream Center for a week to go serve in an inner city, L.A., which now we have, you know, we send people every month, once or twice a month, down to Skid Row to work with the Dream Center and to care for people in L.A., so she went, and I remember she came back after her week, and we had kind of a testimony Sunday. Share your story. What did God do through you at the Dream Center in L.A.? And you're waiting for these huge, grandiose stories about people getting saved and delivered, and we had a few of those. And then <laughs> she gets up, and she goes, all right, I was scared to death to go, but I went in faith, and I really believe that I was supposed to be 